Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Busy Being Black listeners now have an exclusive discount at my favorite publishing house, Pluto Press, an independent publisher of radical left-wing nonfiction books. Established in 1969, Pluto is one of the oldest radical publishing houses in the UK, but its focus remains making timely interventions in contemporary struggles. You'll find a curated list of my favorite books and your exclusive discount code in the show notes. Thanks to funding from the European Cultural Foundation, I'm embarking on a series of conversations exploring queer Black solidarity across Europe during the COVID-19 crisis. As COVID-19 continues to disproportionately impact Black people and communities of color across the globe, these conversations will focus on how marginalized, othered, and vulnerable communities are coming together in solidarity to share their stories, cultures, and acts of protest and resistance. Thank you to the European Cultural Foundation for investing in our stories. My guest today is Fatima El Tayeb, professor of literature and ethnic studies at the University of California, San Diego. Her work deconstructs structural racism in colorblind Europe and centers strategies of resistance among racialized communities. She's the author of three books and, before moving to the U.S., was active in black feminist, migrant, and queer of color organizations in Germany and the Netherlands and was one of the co founders of the Black European Studies Project. Today, she expands upon the connection between black uprisings in Germany in the 80s and the movement for black lives now, the differences between European and American racism, the moments she was radicalized, and the importance of correcting the historical record. She explains the importance of a queer of color critique in our thinking, organizing, and action, sheds light on the construction and function of Islamophobia in Europe, and shares a story about meeting and turning down a dinner invitation from the late and great Audre Lorde. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm Busy Being Black with Professor Fatima El Tayeb. Fatima, thank you so much for making time for me and for Busy Being Black. I am really honored to have you here. Oh, thank you. I'm excited. Um, I've really come to love a question recently. Someone asked me and it really resonated with me. And so I've been asking all my friends and the people I'm interviewing during lockdown, how's your heart? Oof! wow, that's a big question. I don't know. I mean, I think it's something that I'm focusing on more because there's tension between, you know, in some ways everybody pretends as if things are normal and at the same time everybody knows they aren't and that creates a kind of tension that I don't think we can rationalize or deal with so that kind of brings you back to your heart. But that doesn't mean that I have a particular 
answer. But yeah, I'm um, trying to make sure that my heart is okay because if it doesn't, then it really becomes impossible. I guess that's all I can say. And is there anything that you've been turning to over these past few months? I mean, we're obviously having this conversation. COVID is still very much um, raging. Police violence, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and many more. Is there anything that you've been turning to recently that is that you find is, has helped or provided some sense of calm or joy? Yeah. Um, one thing is honestly my garden. Uh, which is a, it's a huge privilege to have a garden and to live in California. Um, so spending time there, you know, meditating is really important. And on the other hand, also just trying to get out of my own head and, and try to do something. Like, I mean, San Diego is, um, is right at the border. There's a huge um, immigrant detention center here with a huge COVID outbreak. I think um, our jail downtown has right now the the biggest COVID outbreak in the state. Um, so, I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot to do, but it's, I, I try to find balance between not to get just burned out by how terrible everything is, but also not to just, you know, uh, hide in my garden. I think there was a moment at the beginning of lockdown, I was having conversations with um, friends, queer black friends, namely, and there was kind of this sense that lockdown and quarantine, for those of us who were privileged enough to be able to be locked down and, and to be comfortable doing so, was actually gonna be like a really welcome break, right? That so many of us have been moving so fast. And I'm just reflecting on how quickly that all went out the window. That I actually... know. <laughs> yeah. I'm someone who really loves to be alone and who needs to be alone. But yeah, it was too, definitely too much even for me. So I've got a lot I want to talk to you about, but I wonder if we might start a little closer to the beginning of your life. If, if you cast your mind back to your adolescence, what stands out for you? I guess just a feeling of being really lost. I have to say, I grew up in a really small Northern German, very, very white town. Um, and to be black and queer there was just like, just, you know, didn't work. So I guess I was, I was in the process of um, trying to figure out how to be me. Um, I was, I had a lot of, lot of anger um, as an adolescent. And I think one of the things that I'm trying to do in my work is to work with that anger, not necessarily get rid of it, but um, acknowledge it and turn it into something productive but that's yeah I mean that was what I was trying to do I guess uh as an adolescence but um it definitely made it easier to first leave that that small town and then later to leave Germany and was your drive to leave Germany in part because of that experience as an as an adolescent this kind of this lustness uh yeah totally I mean Germany was and is super racist not more so than other places necessarily but i felt i had to get away um and that's what i did and it was uh, in many ways it was difficult but it was also uh, a good decision because there was this this tension between you know an environment that tells you in a million ways that who you are is wrong and then you're feeling that it's not so 
I mean, obviously you can survive in an environment like that, but it's just really, really exhausting. And when you know, you know. I remember when I left Atlanta, it was there was a sequence of events, and I this was 2004 or early 2005, and I was like, I'm gonna die here if I stay here. Like it was that serious, right? And I knew I had to get out. Um, so I identify with that. Where did you go? First, I went to the next big city, which was Hamburg, and then I, I went to Amsterdam. I lived there for six years before I came to the U.S. And was it different in Amsterdam? Was it better? Uh, Did you find what you were looking for? Uh, for a while, yeah. It's different. Um, it was it was really interesting because at least then I went, I think it must have been the mid-90s. It was kind of a, um, a meeting point for queer people of color from all across Europe. So um, that was definitely something exciting to have that scene and also to have that politicized scene. Um, and the Dutch, they are not that different from the Germans in terms of how they think, but they are much more, well, Germans are just very much in your face, which can, which I miss sometimes, but it can really be super annoying. And the Dutch are sort of, you know, a lot more restrained. But after a while, you find out that what's going on in their heads is pretty similar. So, um, what do you mean in your face? Well, well, Germans just tell you what you what they think about you because somehow they think you will benefit from that. Um, and I would hate that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did. I mean, I did because it's a lot of crap, really. But on the other hand, I don't know. It's it's also easy in some ways. You know what you're dealing with, right? And that's something I struggle with in the U.S. because Americans are so polite and it's confusing for a German. Um, and yeah, some now I'm going only. I was I was in Germany for a few months last year, but before that, for 20 years, I was only going back for a few weeks each year. So it's refreshing to have that straightforwardness if you know you can leave. If that's all you got, then, oh, yeah. Um, someone said on Twitter a few weeks ago, I wish I would have bookmarked the tweet because, you know, you see a tweet and it's incredible. But the, the sentiment was... Um, no one is radicalized just once, and we're talking politically here, um, but that actually it's a sequence of, of radicalizations. Could you pinpoint the first time that your politics either began to be radicalized or began to be queered? Mm, I don't know, maybe, well, in some ways when I was pretty young, I think maybe around eight or whatever, like my big hero was Muhammad Ali. And I'm old enough to, for him to have still been fighting when I was when I was a child, even though it was towards the end of his career. But um, it was very much obviously for him, for me, not for him to be a boxer. I'm not really that interested in boxing. It was what he represented as a black man who was, um, in some ways, very in your face in that more charming American way. But he. Um, represented something that was completely not present in my environment. So I think uh, in some ways a decision that I made very early was to not, to just have this attitude to a certain extent of, I know you're wrong and I know nobody agrees with me, but I know that there are people out there. So I was looking for those, those people and he might've been the first, but um, I like the public library in our town was like, literally my life source so I was looking for 
um, anything that I could find on initially black movements. I think maybe the second stage of radicalization that I had was when um, I was actually lucky enough that the black German movement really gained momentum um, in the mid eighties when I was just about the time that I was leaving home. So that was really, really important to me to find that community, but then to also realize that there's a, a larger community of people of color. I think this, this move from a kind of uh, more black nationalist position to a kind of queer of color identification. It was also, it was not moment, it was a process. And can you remember what galvanized that, that um, black movement in the eighties in Germany? Oh yeah, it was, um, in part, well, well, what was what was special about it was also something that I'm writing about is that because Audre Lorde um, spent a lot of time in Berlin in the mid '80s, teaching classes and being very, very interested and very proactive um, about meeting um, Black Germans. I remember I went to one of her talks as a 20 year old or something with another black friend. We were the only black people there. And she of course came straight to us and we were like terrified. And so I could kick myself so much. She was like, Hey, let's go for dinner. We were like, no, no, we have to go home. How stupid. <laughs> anyway. So oh, no, that hurts. <laughs> I love <I'm> go- <laughs> I've actually got her, I've got her book right here. So yeah. <laughs> wow. But that that kind of really helped to um, to center black women in a way that often doesn't happen. So there was a also this kind of I think pretty typical European thing, definitely typical German, that there's a very limited willingness to talk about race and racism. If so, it's okay if it comes from someone from the U.S. because that kind of confuses. Yes. Racism exists in the U.S., so we can talk to you about it. And I think Audre Lorde created a space um, to have this conversation about Germany. One of the things, she was invited by this white feminist publisher in Germany to edit a collection of her own work. And she was like, no, no, here are these black German women. Why don't you let them uh, tell their story? And that kind of support from a well-known black feminist um, definitely helped the movement because there was a lot of, I mean, white people in Germany just do not want to talk about racism. Um, so yeah, and it was also, that was, that was when black feminist, transnational feminist thought kind of reached Germany and also the Netherlands. So there was there were things going on that helped. Um, yeah, kind of. I think there was there was always black organizing in Germany, but that was the first time since the nineteen twenties that there was something like a, a bigger movement. Wow, and like how amazing to be like a part of that to live that. Although I guess you must be looking back now, and if you look back now and kind of evaluate that time span between then and now and what we're seeing with the with the uprisings in the US and of course across Europe and the UK. What what comes to mind? What stands out for you as being very much how does how do you feel looking looking at these two, if you think about these two experiences in particular, the the, the protests around George Floyd and the kind of uprising or movement for black lives 
you know, named a different way in Germany in the 80s. Do you see parallels? Sure. Um, I think in some ways, circumstances look much grimmer today, just, you know, globally. But at the same time, there's also a sense of urgency and a sense of, sense of transnational connection. That was there in the 80s, but it was, I don't know, everything's like a little slower, smaller. And I'm, I'm not sure um, if, I, if I could weigh it and say it's, you know, it was more intense then or now. But it just shows you that this is an ongoing process that sometimes not really goes in circles, but we end up at similar points again and again and then approach them from somewhat different perspective. So in some ways, you know, between then and now, a ton of smaller things happened. Mm, yeah. You um, and one of those smaller things, I think, or maybe it's quite big. Um, you're one of the co-founders of the Black European Studies Project, or BEST for short. And the first conference was called Challenging Europe, Black European Studies in the 21st Century. And it was held in November 2005 in Mainz, Germany. I don't know if I said that right. Um, what led to the formation of BEST? Well, it was kind of, um, in some ways, it was really... Um, things coming together. It was an idea that two friends and I had um, at a conference. We're like, that's something we should do. And then we applied for funding and we got it and it happened. And it was pretty, it was pretty amazing and overwhelming. And when I look back to it now, we were like super naive, but it was also really, really exciting because what we wanted to do was to just do something different than um, what I think. No, I, I have, I, I wasn't in, I think I had had a fellowship in the U S by then, but I hadn't really moved there. I hadn't had a job, but what was very obvious to us, um, a black friend, black German friend of mine, Peggy P shirt organizer. Uh, and to me was that the way to go, if you wanted to, work on racism in Germany or in Europe was really to get a job in the US or to, you know, just do that on the side and have a different job because there was no space for that in, in European academia. So what we was, what we were trying to do with this conference or this, this network was to bring together people who live in Europe and who don't have these resources that US universities provide and just give them a space um, for exchange. And I think that was really important. But in retrospect, we should have, you know, thought about creating structures. But that was, you know, just very inexperienced. You got to try. Yeah. <laughs> Throwing shit at the wall and see if it sticks. <laughs> but what stands out for you in that moment? Was there, you know, did you learn anything in particular about how racism works across Europe through that convening? Or sure. the different ways in which racism works across Europe in that convening? Yeah, I think we learned a lot of things. Yeah, one of the things is the same experience that I made in the small town is you need people who share your experiences, just be in a situation where you don't have to explain things. Or the same thing with the, with the Black German movement. I was at one of the earliest meetings of a Black German women's organization that still exists after 30 years or more. And it was the first time in my life that I was in a room with people who were just like me, where I don't need it to explain 
and you didn't need to explain my experiences and in some ways that's really important academically as well because my work as a as a student and grad student in germany was so much about defending what i was doing rather than really engaging with people um in a way that would be productive so creating that space at that conference i think was really important for all of us and what we learned was not that surprising that there are you know national specifics and differences but that there is a kind of european racism that is recognizable that creates shared experiences for black people whether they grow up in romania or norway or spain and, and how would you characterize or describe that european racism and how is it different from you know another brand of racism american racism well in some ways it's it's you know um, it's OG racism, right? Europeans invented it, but for, for exactly <laughs> that I reason. That. <laughs> yeah, yeah I mean, there's this, there's this weird thing that racism, as we know it, wouldn't exist without the need to create Europe the way it exists. But at the same time, the Europeans convinced others and themselves mm. that that also somehow means racism exists everywhere but in Europe, which is an outcome of this form of racism, right, which we all know normalizes whiteness. So the superficial idea is racism can only exist when there are non-white people. And among white people, everything is fine. So the story about Europe is that it's a white continent. Um, and I mean, there are a million counter examples to that, but the story very often is the same. Everywhere in Europe, the presence of people of color is something very recent, something that is understandably disturbing to white Europeans. So you have to give them time to get used to this new thing. Um, and I mean, something that I think is pretty particular European, you have it all across continental Europe, but I don't think in many other places that's the idea of the migrant of the third, fourth, fifth generation. So this idea of racial diversity is something very new is expressed in this term. Like people remain migrants, even if they're, you know, their ancestors came, like in the case of Roma and Sinti 500 years ago, right? Mm. Um, but there's still, even in the language, this notion that this is something new, this is something you were not there, you have come here. And if it's not specifically your, if, if it's your, you know, ancestors, it's still, you're still a newcomer to this, to this white space. And I think that's, that's something that, that white people can't do anywhere else, right? To say, we, this is our space, we have always been here. What they can do is go somewhere and then oh, erase shit. everything that's a really good that point. came before. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah, Europe is the one place they actually have title to. <laughs> yeah, I've never thought about that. Yeah. How do you feel about this? Um, and I haven't written this down, so it, excuse me if it doesn't, doesn't come out as smoothly as I'd like it to. But in the UK, for example, we have lots of scholars and feminists and people kind to, trying to and who have excavated kind of a, a much longer Black British history, right? To say that Black people have been here since the Romans and, and it kind of segues into a conversation about, you know, uh, the non-hierarchical slavery, as it were, right? Anyone who was slaved in the Romans were because they lost the war or something. And how do you feel about these? My feeling is that these kind that what we're 
but that what we do when we engage in this kind of like historical excavation, right, is we're trying to defend our humanity, right? But I think that what we see in, in Europe and in the UK and in the US is that blackness kind of always already sits outside of the category of the human. I don't know, it's not a question, it's just throwing that at you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree because, well, I don't think I would necessarily just reject those those attempts because in some ways they they correct the historical record and then you can oh, yes. you have to go a step further and say well the way the historical record is constructed is already flawed so you have to deconstruct this whole thing but you know you can't always expect people to do that as a first step certainly so while I while it's, that's not necessarily something that I'm very much focused on I also see the importance of just make history as something that's constructed not something that just happens visible to people and it can be empowering of course if you um are able to take ownership of history and actually say well you know you told me the story always in school i i i guess for me i have to admit that it was maybe one of the my moments of radicalization growing up with this very normalized uh confirmation that my presence was something completely unusual, completely new. And then to realize, oh no, actually not. You know, people like me have been around for hundreds of years, so what's up with this story? Mm. Um, so that was, that was important. Um, I don't think it's a solution. I don't think if you can just tell white people, hey, look, there's been a black community in Kassel 200 years ago, that then they will say, oh, okay, welcome. No, of course not. But still something that needs to happen. Yeah, and I yeah, it's a question of of who that work is for and therefore who it empowers, right? This is a good point, right? That it's like, you know, the, my discovery of Bayard Rustin is the queer black man who organized the March on Washington. I have his name tattooed on my leg, right? It was an electrifying moment that someone who was at this very specific intersection that I wanted to occupy had existed before and existed on such a grandiose scale. And so I, I, I certainly feel the import of kind of, um, filling in the gaps of history. Someone said that history is a series of um, editorial decisions. True. <laughs> what's, what's, what's on the cutting room floor is there for a reason. Yeah, no, but I totally agree with you. It's not about, you know, creating this correction and then showing it to white people and hoping that will end racism. No, it's something that's Please, important to uh, us. <laughs> yeah. You say that your work is concerned with the possibilities of transformative coalitions and intersections between racialized communities from a queer of color critique perspective. What does a queer of color critique help us see? And what does it make possible? Um, a lot of things, I believe. For one, go ahead. Well, I just thought maybe we should define a queer of color critique. Well, I think there, there, there are more definitions around, but the way I see it, it is something that is grounded in um, the Black feminist and feminist of color thought of the 70s that, you know, reached the Black German movement in the 80s, um, as I mentioned before. So something that's very foundational in realizing that differences within communities need to be acknowledged. Um, because otherwise you just end up with this model of, however close was the closest to the norm will be the representative of whatever group, which means that among others, um, queer people of color will always be suspicious and marginalized. And that was a realization that women of color feminism already had 
this need to approach difference differently, not erase it and come to a consensus and a normative model, but to actually live with it and use it within a community, but then also in coalitions. Um, and the other thing that um, I think was really important about women of color feminism that queer of color critique picks up is culture as a space of politicization and of political action. And this is something that I'm, I'm looking at very much. Um, I'm often looking like at political, what I see is very political activism that is not necessarily recognized within traditional structures as political. So give me an example. Street art, performance. Right. Um, using, seeing partying as as political and as important as going to rallies. It's a kind of, in a, in a very basic saying, thing, it's this, this challenge to the um, personal political divide. I love that. I do. And the reason I'm having a bit of an aha moment, because I've been reading recently about um, biopolitics and the work mm. of Tim Dean and, and other, you know, Paul Preciado and pharma pornographic society and whatnot, and how that these, um, and I watched a presentation the other day about um, the, um, about pig masculinities, right? About gay men kind of um, subverting dominant and homonormative narratives about what good sex is. And what these scholars have said and are saying is that that, that sex is also political, right? And, and that this, these subcultures that, that, um, that sprout up around um, things like sex. Uh, is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah, in many ways, because, because we, we are, if we want to really change the world, if we want a real revolution, we have to take all of us, all mm. of who we are with us, right? And very often the focus is on this system fail, we'll introduce a new system, but we're still the same people. So a transformation has to happen at every level. And one way to achieve that is to get rid of that hierarchy and to say, you know, what is important is say our rational mind and our commitments to certain established political structures and not how we conceive of friendship, of relate or relationships, how we treat each other. And what queer of color critique does, I think in some ways it's very materialist, which is important to me. It's about changing the economic system. It's about addressing the fact that um, some of us are a lot more precarious than others. And we need to make sure that those people are centered. But at the same time, it also makes sure that things such as pleasure are centered because they're part of the revolution. So in that sense, um, yeah, what Queer of Color Critique does for me is to make sure that we never get stuck. It's also something that can be frustrating because it's not about the right way. And you know, when you reach the end point, it's more about being constantly in motion and always checking back where you are, what your constellations are and to move mm. from there. So, so in some ways it doesn't predict or prescribe an endpoint, which I think is good, but at the same time is also sometimes a little bit frustrating because you have to yeah, try again and again. <laughs> yeah. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. 
Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. But... To me, it's, it's ultimately more hopeful because it also allows you to see connections between small things that then might create all these small things that happen between the 1980s and the moment now in the Black movement, mm. say, that led to this point. Yeah, you, you wrote um, your book, European Others, um, examines the position of racialized communities in the European Union and argues that the tension between a growing non-white, non-Christian population and essentialist definitions of Europeanness produces new forms of identity and activism. Can you speak more on how identity and activism is transformed by that tension? So there's obviously that you're looking back through your queer of color critique to examine these kind of uh, points of connection, um, but how is identity and activism transformed by the tension well, I think in some ways um, what the European model pushes people to do is racialize people is to identify it with the migrant description. So what you had um, in the 70s was a lot of ethnic organizing under the migrant label, which was often accurate for people who had migrated and which was powerful, but at the same time, it became less and less useful for a new generation of people who hasn't, hadn't actually migrated mm. and who shared certain conditions in the present, whether um, their um, ancestors came or their parents, their grandparents came from Turkey or Algeria or Romania. So... Um, that required a new way of organizing, but at the same time, there was also no space for that because the, the idea of um, like somebody who's Turkish German is just not part of what was deemed possible. So this was something that was all in the making. And what I'm interested in are those groups who work with attention, who are not eager to create a legible, stable identity for themselves to present it to the, to the majority, but who are actually like, yeah, this is something that's unclear. This is something that's fluctuating. I am very explicitly a Muslim in that context. And in this other context, it's much more important that I'm Black. So what, so, um, what I'm looking at in the, in the book are groups that try to create a kind of positionality, not so much identity that creates commonality across difference without um, denying that difference. And what often happens is that it creates coalitions, very productive coalitions for some time, but then they fall apart again because they're not based on a stable identity. But I think that's actually fine. Right, like it's, it's not, it's, and they're not based on a shared culture, as it were, right? If you're bringing all these disparate communities together or people together. Or, because well, culture, culture is a unifying tool, right? Or it can be. Sure, but it's also something that's always in the making and always changing, right? It's not something that's static. Like if you're a migrant, for example, you bring a lift culture with you into a new space and you... Um, 
share that culture with your kids, but for your kids, that culture is something different because mm. they approach it from a different position, but also because they own it in a different way and do something different. And it could be um, like one of the, the organizations I was part of and was writing about was a queer of color organization in Amsterdam called Strange Fruit that had members from North Africa, from the Caribbean, from Africa, from Eastern Europe. Um, and what they did was to bring in different cultural traditions, for example, the Surinamese Winchi tradition. So some of the members of the group grew up with that culture, but they shared it in this queer of color context and right. used it for something different and connected it with other cultural tradition, traditions to produce something different. So there's, there's this kind of culture, I think, that we all share, even if we're not all part of it all the time. Yeah, and I'm thinking that actually now that my statement about culture is kind of in line with the uh, <laughs> the uh, the kind of dominant assimilationist right rhetoric. <laughs> like, if we all have this monoculture that we can all buy into, then we can organize better. But you're actually at, pushing against that. I see that now. Um, you've written about how queer Muslims are further othered and excluded within a queer Europe. Um, and one, I'm interested in your focus here on queer Muslims. Like, what do you think that an examination here uncovers? Um, but can you also speak on the particular hurdles that our queer Muslim siblings face? What I can, I can speak about or what I'm interested in, I think, is the construction or the construction of an impossibility of a queer Muslim identity, not so much what the hurdles are that individual queer Muslims are facing, because uh, I think that, I that that really depends very much. And one of the one of the important issues, of course, is that Islam is not nearly as monolithic as it's re represented. So experience mm. can can differ widely. But one, I think, consensus among not only conservative Europeans but also very much the left and in particular feminists, near consensus is that um, queer Muslims face an particular difficult situation because they come out of a particularly homophobic, sexist, restrictive, cultural or religious background. It's not necessarily even always about religion. It can also transfer to um, the idea that cultures that are majority Muslim share all those qualities. Um, and of course, this binary also demands that um, queer Muslims internalize that narrative if they want to be heard, or Muslim feminists. So it's very, I think in feminist um, circles, it's even more explicit, this kind of escape narrative that tells the story of awakening very often by coming into contact, either by moving to Europe or by coming into contact with Euro European thought. And then, you know, the Muslim woman realizes that she can be free. But freedom means she has to leave her religion for, for sure, but probably also her community. And that's, um, I mean, it's a stupid narrative, but it's incredibly powerful. So mm. what I'm interested in is why, it is why is it so powerful and what space is left for queer or feminist Muslims within that to not fall into the, into the trap of either, you know, internalizing that or the other pressure, of course, that you always have in oppressed communities is, you know, um, stick together. Don't uh, wash your dirty laundry in public. 
So don't talk about homophobia within Muslim communities because it just feeds stereotypes. So how can you, how can you deal with that tension productively? And have you uncovered um, why that narrative is so powerful? What purpose it serves, that narrative? Well, the purpose it generally ser serves um, for Europeans is to, to um, justify their racism because if the majority of labor migrants wouldn't be Muslim, I don't think it would be such an important topic in Europe. In the US, it's a different context, but in Europe, it's much, much closer, more closely tied to economics and class. Um, and of course, there's a much longer tradition. Um, Islam and Christian, Christianity were always present in that space that is not as neatly separated as it's presented, right? The Mediterranean was a uh, a cultural zone of exchange. Right now, it's presented as a complete division, right? Um, right? North, north of the Mediterranean, freedom and civilization, south of it, um, despotism, oppression, fanaticism, poverty, which is something that, of course, was in, to a large extent produced by Europeans. Um, but I think that um, Muslims are also a very convenient site of projection for all the transformations that Europe is going through since, um, since the end of the Cold War, which means in many ways a, a real violent move to neoliberalism. And that is often justified through a discourse of, um, of a threat to Europe that is represented by Muslims. So in many ways, the, the actual um, disappearance of solidarity within a society um, towards the poor, towards the elderly, all kinds of people that might need solidarity and support within a society is kind of um, hidden between this narrative that we stick together. And those people are the ones that bring in all the problems. Yeah, I mean, why why is it so successful? Why is racism successful? It's in, in some ways an easy answer, um, but I don't think it's it's anything about Muslims that produces that. It's a position that they fill right now, and that other groups have filled before and will unfortunately probably fill in the future. Uh, you said that uh, you wrote, quote, homonormative homo queers are offered protection through an Islamophobic consensus that frames the policing of poor racialized communities as a protection of human rights. And, I, and of course, Islamophobia then becomes one of the um, access points, as it were, for homonormativity, right? This kind of um, rejection of the other or this fear of the other. And I guess I saw a lot of parallels to blackness there as well, right? The, the, the policing of um, who is allowed to be queer, what that queerness might look like, and if blacks are allowed in the queer community, then this is, this is, their, this is their serviceability, which is largely um, around desire. I'm thinking of, of black men largely here, but yeah. Not, well, yeah, I, that's, I, I, loved, I mean, yeah. that's that very much the dynamic, for example, in the Netherlands with Muslim well, men as well. There's, of course, there, there's, that's also the attraction and the, ah, the, the sense of the forbidden. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry, I'm laughing just because I... <laughs> um, 
the the sense of the forbidden for white people it, it just it does make me laugh because it's just so that's um, tiresome it is it is um do you think the europe that we need it to be is possible right europe defines its uh, the European Union rather defines its values as human dignity, freedom, democracy, human rights. Um, and so often we see that it doesn't live up to those values unless people are white. Do you think it's possible, the Europe that we need it to be? Do you think it's possible? No, I don't think so. Um, I think we have to get rid of the idea of Europe to achieve that because it becomes more and more obvious that um, this relative freedom and stability and wealth is, has always been um, bought at the cost of others. And um, I mean, what's happening right now, it's just, um, it's so obvious that it's something that's escalating and not diminishing through some notion of progress. So what Europe is doing, has been doing for decades is to put it, friendly accepting the deaths of tens of thousands of people at its borders each year. You could also frame it as a more proactive move on the side of the Europeans. And there's no alternative that has been suggested to that um, within the European Union. So it's very clear if Europe wants to follow this ideal um, in the future, it has to shut itself off. Um, more and more violently. And that's what it always did, right? It was, uh, it was like that through colonialism. There would be no wealthy European Union without colonialism. So this is something that was always, this is a kind of, it is a kind of progress. It, it is, is a kind of freedom. It is a kind of stability, but not because it's the more advanced, better model, but because it had this huge surplus population elsewhere that could be exploited to achieve that. That's just how it is. And yeah, that's why um, to achieve that on a broader scale, not only for white Europeans, I think Europe has to go. In thinking about solidarity, um, what does solidarity mean to you? How is it expressed, practiced, demonstrated? Uh, yeah, well, that's a difficult question because I'm of course in a very privileged position so what I'm struggling with is to acknowledge that and also acknowledge that um, that's something that I have gotten used to. I was like getting my first job at a university in the US was kind of really hard for me because I was suddenly on the other side, but I chose to remain on that side because it brings a lot of advantages for my work, I think, for what I can do, but also just, just for me. So I think solidarity, at least if you're in a privileged position like I am, means to kind of find a balance between um, using the resources, trying to use the resources that you have as much as possible to bring about change, which also sometimes can just mean give the resources to other people. But it also, I think, means the a different vision for something that um, might not come about ever or, or very soon, but if it should, it also it would mean to have, to have to go through changes that will not only 
be pleasant. So I think solidarity in some ways, uh, I don't know. It's, 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 I think queer color critique is something that helps me with that because it just prevents me from being like, oh my God, I'm such a sellout and just blah, blah, blah. Um, or thinking, oh my God, it's so important that I'm in this institution because I'm so radical, blah, blah, blah. And both are sometimes true, but um, to get out of that and to connect to what I think is really important to have connections that for me as someone who is the daughter of migrants, but also who migrated herself are somewhat naturally transnational, but also also very local. Like um, working here around immigrant detention at the US-Mexico border has such obvious connections to what's going on in Europe. So to, mm. to kind of, yeah, I don't know. And it's also, it's also about what, I guess, what you're good at. And I, yeah. I think I'm, I'm fairly good at analyzing certain things and writing that down. So it's also kind of finding a spot where you feel like you can be useful within the ecosystem of change yeah yeah mm. and not not take yourself too seriously but also <laughs> not you know let yourself off the hook too easily what's exciting you right now <sighs> i don't know man not that much <laughs> maybe the, the, the hope that after november it'll be a little better mm. but um yeah, here, I mean, in California, we're pretty much um, still in lockdown. So a lot of the organizing I do is actually through Zoom. So so honestly, just sometimes get together in a park and actually, you know, make banners together in person is exciting because that has mm. become a really rare experience. And also just remembering that, remembering why it's so important to because I'm like, I'm not a social media person. I'm always like, it's important to meet in a room, actually, sometimes. Um, and I feel confirmed right now because we don't have that. And to just feel the energy and what difference it makes to be together with all, you know, again, with our whole selves, our bodies, um, is something that, yeah, that I think is, is, is exciting. But overall, I have to say, I find it's pretty grim right now. Yeah, I, w I remember I was most excited when lockdown. One of the things I craved and missed the most was an espresso martini with my friends. <laughs> so when lockdown lifted, that was the first thing I did. <laughs> I am a prototypical gay. <laughs> it's like, I just want to be at Soho House. Um, so yeah, anyway. Um, to close, I ask all of my guests the same question. What do you hope for? Oh, I'm not super hopeful at the moment, but I do think that I'm basically a very hopeful person so i do um i do hope for for a better future and i do hope um i mean i feel like there's a lot of amazing things happening right now just on the on the local level the um mutual aid groups that immediately popped up when the lockdown started the organizing, the fact that so many very young people are out on the streets. Um, so I, I, I mean, I do believe that um, there's always, there's always going to be pushback, no matter how terrible conditions are. So out of that comes the hope 
that things will change for the better and that more important people maybe realize that capitalism really sucks it's not working and mm. maybe we should try something else yeah, yeah that's I, I, d I don't mean to force hope on you either you know Tanahasi Coates says uh, in an interview he said that uh, people are always asking him about hope and why should black people be hopeful about anything so well the um, fact that I mean I, I like it. it's refreshing that you're a little nihilistic at the minute. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like the the fact that we're still there means that you know black people are experts at hope because you know it's it's easy to have hope when everything goes your way, but if it doesn't and you still persist, I think that's that's enough. So you don't really have to be very explicit about your hope necessary. I don't I don't think that I could even get out of bed in the morning if I wouldn't be hopeful. Well, your work makes me hopeful and I'm really grateful for your time today. Well, likewise, your work makes me hopeful too. Professor Fatima Altayeb is Professor of Literature and Ethnic Studies at the University of California, San Diego. Her work deconstructs structural racism in colorblind Europe and centers strategies of resistance among racialized communities. Thank you to our newest funding partner, MyGWork, the LGBT business community. MyGWork is a global recruitment and networking hub for LGBT professionals, graduates, allies, and organizations to promote diversity and inclusion in the workplace and beyond. And as the landscape of work changes beneath our feet, MyGWork's focus on ensuring LGBT voices and experiences are heard is as important as ever. Find out more at MyGWork.com. Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer black lives. Thank you to our partners, UK Black Pride, Blackout UK, The Tenth, and Schools Out. And thank you to you, the listeners. Remember this, your support doesn't cost any money. Retweets, ratings, shares, and reviews all help, so please keep the support coming. Finally, thank you to Anthony Giles, a queer black Grammy-nominated producer based in New York City for these bomb-ass Busy Being Black beats. Ashe. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.